welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. We've launched a new Let It Roll website at the same old URL, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's a complete archive of all of our 350-plus shows, sorted by season, miniseries, co-host, guest, genre, and era. It's also a great way to support the show. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber if you can afford it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at LetItRollCast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at the biggest year ever for the king of heartland rock, Bruce Springsteen. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right. If I'm saying 80s roll, that means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by the Freebird Yeller himself, Ed Legg, to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. And this chapter is set in a civic arena of Pittsburgh, September 21st, 1984. And we're going into the heart of darkness of the Reagan-Thatcher era. This, at first, the organization of this chapter kind of flummoxed me because he starts out with a discussion of crass the british anarcho punk band a little bit about some band records in england the minor strike so maggie a little talk of maggie thatcher then we segue into sun city and some talk about apartheid and people who broke the thing and then broke the um ban against performing at Sun City and and the boycott on the apartheid country. Then we get into Mike Love and the Beach Boys and the White House lawn, and then we get to Bruce Springsteen. So then it all made sense. We wrap up with a little... Again, we wrap up with a sort of little odd thing about Fila Cootie getting arrested in Nigeria before he was supposed to start an American tour. But I think the overall theme is... Reagan Thatcherism and Bruce Springsteen's commentary on same is that a fair assessment, Mr. Legg? Yeah, it isn't. The 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 the, I don't know. This could be my brain, my brain on my brain. Um, (laughs) But the more (laughs) the more I thought about, the worse I felt about the Reagan years. Which um, and just that that this was there. That this was a this was an ongoing thing and. and, you know, I had only voted in one election by 84 and then, you know, 84 was the second one. And after that, and Were you a things John went Anderson on. voter by chance? No, no, I'm a Carter Democrat. I mean, I know that. <laughs> I no shouldn't shame. say that out loud. But I mean, no, I mean, I was. I, I he mean, was I the was, first neoliberal. I mean, come on. Yeah, I know. I know it. He got Go this ahead. party started. 
Uh, he's he's <laughs> the guy who put Paul Volcker in at the Fed, gave us 21% interest rates, crushed uh, that inflation and, and the economy with it, uh, started the military <laughs> buildup, you know, boycotted yep. the oh, Olympics. God. Uh, yep, tried to invade it. Iran, <laughs> but you know, did a whole lot awful. for <laughs> did a lot for Habitat for Humanity in his later years, and was a really sweet, you know, of all the ex presidents, was the nicest one, I'd say. But I agree. But then he leads us to Reagan and Thatcher. You can't really blame Carter for Thatcher, but true. Yeah, I mean, Reagan and Thatcher is what starts off what gets us here you know yeah where where, yeah. where we've gotten if you're happy with where we're at <laughs> then it must yeah be oh great. oh yes oh you are it is so true and it, it it this is the thing i i remember telling somebody a long time ago like tw- 20 years ago you know this bunch makes reagan look cuddly and <laughs> <laughs> he was a sweet man it, by all accounts well, well, he was, but it's gotten worse. It's even worse now, 20 years later. I mean, that's what's kind of freaky yeah. about all this. And, and, and you know, the I don't think it was just me, but, I mean, there was a lot of people who, and I worked in the, you know, was in journalism. I worked at the student newspaper, and I was around, you know, I was in, the, in that kind of fomented atmosphere. But um, we really felt like this was a move toward fascism, and... You know, the same guys who helped Reagan get elected, you know, um, Lee Atwater's, there's a famous, there's a picture they kept running of Lee Atwater, um, Paul Manafort, and what's his name who has Nixon tattooed on his back. Um, uh, Roger nobody Stone. Ever, yeah, and nobody, yes, and nobody ever mentions that Lee Atwater standing right between them, and that's who got Bush elected. So, yep. uh, yep, yep. And, then, and then put B.B. King up on stage. I mean, good Lord. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, Lee Atwater is the the guy who proved that just because you liked blues and R and B did not make you an enlightened Southerner uh, at all. Right. But let's get into the music here. So we he leads off with the band Crass confessing to an audio forgery, and I went back and listened to this. They they made this painstakingly with analog technique technology they made this fake conversation between reagan and thatcher that made them sound even worse than they were and released it to the public the u.s state department labeled it soviet active measures in case <laughs> russia gate did not start uh cold in 2016 turns out it wasn't soviet active measures it was a punk band trying to cause some trouble and I don't know if that led directly to a UK retailer being convicted of obscenity charges for selling their single sheep farming in the Falklands and a couple of dead Kennedy's albums or not, but I'm sure it didn't help him at trial. <laughs> and, and then he's got a great quote. I can't remember who it came from, but that somebody described uh, voting for Margaret Thatcher was like buying a Vera Lynn record. And she's the woman who's saying, uh, you know, uh, oh, what's that song? Um, the World World two song that the birds covered at the end of their first album i got it i can't think of it i can't think of it we'll meet again some sunny day we'll meet again don't know where don't know when but some sunny day so vera lynn this very beloved british singer and voting for thatcher was like buying a vera lynn record getting at home and finding that never mind the bullocks was inside the sleeve (laughs) so (laughs) 
there you go. They thought they were getting a sweet, lovable grandmother, and what they got was a big fist to the face. The National Union of Mine Workers learned that the hard way. Uh, they had a big strike that was viciously crushed uh, by the police. And on the technical series, we've talked about um, some of these tactics being used again against ravers uh, in the early 90s. Um, but the 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 mine workers and their anarcho-punk supporters crash crass, as well as a test industrial group test department who were playing benefits for the miners all got caught up into that. Crass ends up breaking up. And uh, I don't know, just kind of an interesting aside. Like I wasn't. Truly. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting this in the Bruce Springsteen chapter. And then they segue into uh, a group called Special AKA, which was a descendant of the Specials, which was the leading two-tone group, the Ska Revival Act from the late 70s, led by Jerry Dammers. But then his three-man vocal frontline quit on him. Terry Hall, Linville Golding, and Neville Staple quit to form Fun Boy 3 which I can remember to this day getting that first Fun Boy 3 album and that being one of those albums that just put a pall on the party because <laughs> my brother and his <laughs> friends were expecting more specials or something and and, and uh, Fun Boy 3 was not it. It, it, it. A similar thing happened when the Paul Weller uh, uh, Style Council album came out and they were expecting a jam record and got sent to yes. but, um, you know, so Which I like. I like it, Style Council, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, yeah, but, but I they get were, it. it were, they were jam. very good, but yeah, but if you're a bunch of meathead rock fans in Texas and, and wanted a jam record, it was not yeah. not where you're getting. Yeah. But Jerry Jammers reformed, or he didn't reform, but he sort of reorganized the specials as Special AKA, and um, uh, you know, had a minor hit with a song called "The Boiler" that Matos talks about, where uh, singer Rhoda Dakar does a pretty powerful monologue slash song about a, a sexual assault, a, a date rape. That's pretty brutal. And then, but they got in a situation where Dammers is trying to be super democratic because he felt he'd been too dictatorial and that's why his vocal frontline had quit on him. So he's trying to accommodate. It's kind of like uh, Creedence Clearwater's um, Mardi Gras album where John Fogarty was trying to let the uh, two remaining members after Tom Fogarty quit, you know, have equal votes. And that led to a very long and expensive production cycle. So he felt like he needed a hit. Calls in Elvis Costello, who writes the Nelson Mandela uh, single. And let's go ahead and hear it. This is Nelson, free Nelson Mandela as it was released in the States by Special AKA. And that was Free Nelson Mandela by Special AK. And I have to say, I thought that aged better than than you would expect for a pretty um, polemical song. I mean, you know, but it's, it's also aged well politically. I think Nelson Mandela is generally pretty well regarded at this point. I think he won a Nobel Prize for helping bring him into apartheid and being the first president of post-apartheid South Africa. Um, but then that brings us to little Elvis Costello. 
aside where they talk about um, he finally got a hit in the United States with Every Day I Write the Book in 1983, right in there with that second British invasion off his Punch the Clock album. And then Matos is pretty brutal, but I guess he's accurate that that Costello was just exhausted after seven straight years of touring and recording and the attractions were burnt out too and puts out Goodbye Cruel World, which yet again, another one I remember unpacking, that one we got in the mail and and putting on and it was a massive dud and if i remember correctly we got it in the mail the same week we got the meat men war of Superbikes, which we were all excited about because tesco v of crippled children suck fame which is as charming as it sounds <laughs> and, and three down one to go about the beatles or one down three to go about the beatles and also some really homophobic stuff oh, that, no. we thought, <laughs> that we thought was super hilarious uh, as as homophobic 12 yeah. year olds yeah but then when we hear he's hooking up with the guitar players from minor threat lyle Presslar and brett baker we we thought this was going to be you know something we were really excited about it and then we get it in the mail and it's like well <laughs> this is a disappointing set i think the first sam hayne album might have been in there too anyway uh glenn danzig's the first time glenn danzig let us down but anyway even Elvis costello later in the liner notes to re-release called goodbye cruel world our worst album and I uh, broke up the attraction shortly thereafter because he couldn't afford to pay him. So kind of a depressing little aside on the Elvis Costello front. Were you following Elvis through this well, period? As funny as strange would have it, I actually saw him in August that year. And I think the attractions are still with him. Um, and I was not, I can't say that, you know, I, I hated it or anything like that. I mean, he was, he was kind of funny. Um, the opening act was Nicholas Cowboy Outfit, which had, I think, Paul Carrick is the guy's name, who played an ace and also sang for Squeeze. He was he was in Nicholas Cowboy Outfit. So that was actually a bigger treat. I was a bigger fan of that than Elvis. Um, but I say, And it was one of those larks where a buddy of mine said, you want to try to go and get a ticket? And we just basically lucked out and got one. And it was almost like a non sequitur, which... I also, I didn't, I mean, I only went to six concerts a year or five concerts a year, but I had not gone, I'd only gone to one in 83 and one, I think two in 82 after this being, you know, something that I cared about more than anything. So I was, I was back in action at least. And I did see Springsteen at the end and in between Elvis and Springsteen was Neil Young when he toured with, um, with Waylon, um, which I I don't know. Yeah. Which was actually pretty good, especially it was especially good considering that I saw Neil on the trans tour before that. (laughs) How was that one? That was where he wore the little laser glasses or whatever. It was bizarre. It was, it was surreal made more so by the uh, heavy drinking habit that I had at the time. And the the, the assiduous pre-gaming that I had engaged in, which we didn't call it that then, and it was at Georgia, it was at Athens, it was in Athens, and Pete Buck was backstage, and he was even interviewed during the concert. It was so weird. It was that was in like February of '83, and um, Pete Buck got interviewed during the concert. Yes, yes, they had some. By some weird guy that was like he he was they had a narrator for the concert. He was like a newsman. He was like <laughs> a fake newsman. That was how. And I mean, it was just this long droning thing, 
Um, and it was, I mean, it was totally bizarre and I wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, I was a fan, but you know, the other things, and then the, the woman that I was with decided to rush the stage and we weren't anywhere near the stage. Yes. She only, she didn't get to the end of our aisle. That's oh how bad God. it was. Oh <laughs> man. And that was a weird period for Neil Young. I think, I think Matos covered yes. it in the last chapter, but he, he did. Yeah. He, he had did. been so hot coming off of, um, uh, Hey, Hey, my, my, uh, and, that album and then followed it up with a live album that you know was basically plowing the same turf everybody loved it heavy rock neil young very popular in the late 70s and then he does trans reactor and then shock neil young and the shocking pinks where he does a rockabilly album and then he did a country album and 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 geffen ended up suing him (laughs) over that because he didn't sound like neil young yeah because he didn't sound like neil young we covered that a little bit last time but yeah that was an odd period but but neil young's country thing did fit in with the sort of heartland rock yes it did of 1984 and let's cover the sun city business real quick and then we'll get into the king of heartland rock himself well i do i want to give a word of warning a teaser that will make people listen to the end if you think a newsman, a fake newsman at a Neil Young in a Neil Young show is weird, wait till you hear about the shade tree and the dancing bear at the Springsteen show. <laughs> the shade tree and the dancing bear. Well, I'm, I'm bracing yes. myself already. I'm, I'm hoping we won't have to beep out any references to Bear Rabbit or any, <laughs> anything no. like that. Okay. No, it isn't, it isn't that bad. But Don't throw me in that briar keep- patch. We'll but, get uh, there. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah, there's certain words you can't even say around those stories. And it ain't brother bear. No kidding. Bear, bear. Amen, brother. Amen. But, no, it isn't bear. It's Dave the dancing bear. And I looked this up right before we talked. And it's it's. I was. I know that I didn't imagine the bear. I wasn't. I was stone cold sober at that show. <laughs> but let's talk about Sun City real quick because this was getting a lot of controversy and. Um, and again, I'm curious as to Matos's strategy here for putting this piece into this chapter, because I think we're, I get a feeling we're going to hear more about this. But he mentions Sun City, which was a resort off the coast of South Africa that had a sort of pseudo integrated audience. And that was their pitch to some artists that look it's not apartheid it's a it's an integrated audience you're not you know you're not technically playing south africa you shouldn't be violating the sanctions but of course they were i think uh, rod stewart was a serial violator millie jackson the r&b singer of all people um broke the sanctions and had to get some people to help her get off the u.n naughty list and then linda ronstadt had this total reactionary moment where she insisted on playing just because she had been told she couldn't and compared herself to jane fonda going to north vietnam during the vietnam war which is also a controversial decision i don't yeah. know that i yeah. i support to, to this day i don't think i approve of jane fonda yeah. going to north vietnam in the middle of a war while american soldiers are being killed by the Viet Cong. but linda ronsett felt that her performance her lucrative performance at sun city was somehow protest theater uh comparable to what jane fonda did and 
seems like it, she basically skated on that. It, it seems like her 80s career of, of doing, you know, uh, American Standards with Nelson Riddle and then and then segueing over doing Country with Dolly Parton and Emily Harris and then doing Spanish songs uh, unscathed, like just, just skated right mm-hmm. through without a whole lot of blowback. But then he gets into this thing about how uh, Rough Trade had put, been putting out some comps of music made by South Africans, um, which came to the attention of a, of a woman in the Saturday Night Live band named Heidi Berg, who then brought it to the attention of one Paul Simon, who is like, cool tape. And next thing she hears, he's like, I've licensed some of these songs and I'm writing new lyrics for them. And that's going to be Graceland. In a couple yep. of years, and uh, and and also like connecting Paul Simon to Saturday Night Live, which he was you know super pals with Lorne Michaels, and making him look like a bit of a jackass because when Heidi Berg asked him, "Where's my cut?" end of conversation and presumably end of relationship, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you know, and and I just kind of wonder, you know, I mean, Paul Simon's Graceland was a big thing, and Matos has been talking about African music consistently through this book but again i I kind of felt like it was a non sequitur and speaking of non sequiturs let's go back and hear elvis costello's first american hit single every day i write the book that was every day i write the book the commercial breakthrough by elvis costello although a lot of good it did him in my house because i thought that was by squeeze for some reason and uh until i uh, until i actually said that new squeeze song's pretty good and somebody my friends (laughs) had a (laughs) good laugh at me over that bit of dumbassery but now we've got reagan's famous I've outlawed Russia. We begin bombing in five minutes. I guess it was a gaffe because it was publicly released. And that inspired Jerry Harrison and Bootsy Collins to do a collaboration which, with a kind of early sample called Five Minutes by a group called Bonzo Goes to Washington, which got quite a bit of club play, had multiple mixes. Um, but not everybody was anti-Reagan. They talk about how the Beach Boys... Uh, and Mike Love in particular were thrilled to be playing on the White House lawn on July 4th, 1984, because the year before, Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, James Watt, had banned the Beach Boys because of the rough and bad element they brought in. And uh, Nancy Reagan was slightly more hip than James Watt, and she she loved the Beach Boys and had them come back. And by that point, Watt had had to resign. And, and uh, you know, Watt was one of those guys in the cabinet that got a lot of negative attention and was easy for reagan to scapegoat and then dump but he pulled some humdingers matos doesn't even mention uh you know some of watt's other remarks he made some pretty hilarious racist remarks about how diverse his staff was at the interior committee but he he used a string of slurs to describe all the people that he had on there and i think wrapped it up with the word cripple if i remember correctly but um yeah the great james watt uh 
Yeah. Ah, and no, this is the chapter where, where he talks about Neil Young getting sued by Geffen. So it all comes okay. together neatly, as, as Matos is wanted to do. And now – and then he talks about the Reagan economy and uh, does this neat segue where he's, he quotes somebody that says, Reagan has a tendency to say the most hard-hearted things in the most lighthearted way. I believe it was a New York Times reporter or editor talking about that, which to this day the New York Times loves to talk about uh, – uh, Republicans like that in the most positive terms. But that brings us to Bruce Springsteen, who's also capable of saying the most hard-hearted things, the most lighthearted way. And they, then he gives a pretty thorough summary of Springsteen's whole career. So uh, take on Springsteen. What, where, what was your vibe on You saw him live. How, how was the show? Was yes, it one of those four-hour well, ones? Yes, and I mean, I you know, I, I wrestle with this in part because, I mean, I have good friends who quote Springsteen to me to this day. Um, but I, he did, you know, I saw him in December and so the tour had been going on and, um, I had seen him in 76 when he toured after the hype of the fall of 75, when he was on the two on Newsweek and time. And so I hadn't seen him in a long time and I'd actually gotten into born to run since then. So I kind of was open I had, I had reopened my mind to him. And the thing that several things struck me and we can talk more down the road about where, where he was at this point, because this definitely was a kind of a profit taking move by him and his management. I feel like, um, this tour, he did, they really did parachute into this, into this year. Cause the, the album was I think the album was released in June. And that's really when it kind of started. It wasn't one of these deals like an album that I, that had been sitting there, been planned, and was part of this confluence of 1980. That's that's my take. It didn't feel like it was a confluence of 1985. It felt like Springsteen appeared and really was with with the program of 1985 with the the kind of songs 84. that he had. 84. 84. Sorry, sorry, I am sorry. You're right. <laughs> well, this like... thing. You know what? They kept going into. He was, you know, the book's going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And he was touring. He was um, touring stadiums by the end of 85. I'm sorry yeah. I kept saying 85. That's, that's kind of ruined now, the whole and, that, and that's fair enough. And anyway, honestly, the book is but, really kind of a long 1984 because it really goes from 79 to 85 or, or at least 82 to 85. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, but back to Bruce. But but he um, but they OK. So the four out the four hour deal went like this. He took really long breaks between songs. I am not making this up. He would stand there with his face and and some and a water and a ice water because he just it in it so it had this really weird momentum. And what I said about the tree, this tree comes out on, so it was near Christmas, so they were decorated with Christmas lights and all that, which I get that. It yes, it wasn't Alice Cooper chasing Santa Claus off the stage, but you know, it's 1984. It's not 1974. But they, this tree comes out, and it looks like something out of Sid and Marty Croft, which was a big uh, puppet puppeteer cartoon uh, amalgamation of the in the 60s and 70s. And if think think, um, you remember those characters at McDonald's, the the Hamburglar? Those were Sid and Marty Croft characters. This is what this tree was like. It had little. It was big. It was like could have been in a theme park, and it had shade, like sunglasses hanging on it, because it was a quote shade tree. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. we're doing. Uh-huh. It was, uh-huh. He was about to do growing up, and and basically engaging in hokum. 
That, and and that's when the dancing bear came out. I don't remember that much about the bear, but when Mick Jagger did came out with his stuff in the, in the spring of '85, and he was on the cover of Rolling Stone, they he was interviewed, I think, by Jan Winter in that issue. And Jan says something to him about Springsteen. He goes, "Yeah, I saw the show that one with the bear." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what is it? What is it now? The, the the faithful will tell you, of course, that's just one more wonderful thing that Bruce did. Um, one of many. But, but yes, yes. Well, well, everything he does. Now, did this bear play the saxophone? Was this was this bear Clarence? It Clemens? might have. He wasn't but, right. It, no, maybe it was. Was this a real bear? Or was this was, a man in a bear it suit? It was a guy in a bear suit. It was a guy in a bear suit. I don't remember that. The shade tree, I remember more. It just was. It was just hokey. And I um, were Gilligan and the Skipper involved here, or they, they that would have made it a little more edgy. <laughs> <laughs> but and I, I mean, the two times I saw Bruce, and did Bruce point, kiss Clarence in this show? Because they famously you know what? did that. I know I've seen that one. I saw that in the Rock Hall of Fame the first time I went because um, they they had a Springsteen exhibit that was pretty good. But no, he didn't. They did. The first time I saw Bruce in 76, and, and the, that was in March of 76, they did the thing where uh, he was called Miami Steve then, where Van Zandt and uh, I think a couple of them crawl around under Bruce's legs and crawl around him. They, he didn't kiss him. but <laughs> I see. I see. Just as homoerotic as you can handle and still be yes. a Heartland rocker. Yeah, a little edgy. Yeah, yeah. And so Matos Matos basically tells the whole story of Bruce Springsteen's career, but he starts with the Hungry Heart single, the hit single off the 1979's "The River," and that was his first true hit single. Even though "Born to Run" had gone platinum and gotten him on the cover of Time and Newsweek, it hadn't produced any hit singles. And then um, I think he did Darkness on the Edge of Town and then The River. I don't think Matos talked about Darkness yes, on the Edge of Town. Right. But then he doesn't he, even mention it. You're right. And 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 he did. He mentions every other album. I mean, he talks that about. That is so true. Gradients from Asbury Park, the, the 1973 yeah. debut, uh, the something to something in the East Street Shuffle, his second album, and then the famous Born to Run, which John Landa took, takes over the production of and uh, and and you know management of bruce makes him a star uh, you know the unmentioned album darkness uh and the east whatever darkness on edge of town and then the river which was a double album produces the hungry hungry heart hit single hardest working man in show business you know james brown and frank sinatra can stuff it because bruce does 140 shows following the river comes home late in 1980 realizes he has nothing else in his life but his music poor bruce poor bruce and 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 so he stews in his juices for a couple years and makes for me the only album i can stand <laughs> apologies to bruce springsteen fans i know i got people, you, man I know people love this guy. I know he's immensely well respected, and I have tried and tried and tried to like him. I love, you know, I worshiped Dave Marsh and the Rolling Stone Record Guide when I was in high school. Bruce Springsteen is probably Dave Marsh's ultimate artist. I read all the reviews, I bought all the albums, I, I read both Dave Marsh biographies. I dated a girl who loved Bruce Springsteen. 
listen to Bruce Springsteen constantly through this period. And at the end of it, I realized I hate this guy. <laughs> I hate everything about him. <laughs> and, and the stories about like how they recorded Born to Run and then couldn't ever record it again because the time signatures were too hard or, you know, but let's take a sponsor break and when we come back, I'll bitch about Bruce Springsteen some more. So Sounds good. yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So hopefully the advertisers cleansed your palate if you're furious at me for dissing Bruce Springsteen. But there was another part in the book where they were talking. It might have been the 10th Avenue freeze out or something where they were having this four day ordeal trying to do the horn arrangement. And little Stevie uh, Van Zant, Miami Steve Van Zant, comes in the studio and sorts it out in five minutes. And I wasn't impressed by how slick Stevie was. I was just impressed at how inept Bruce and Landau where that they couldn't do a horn <laughs> arrangement in three yeah, days. But yep. I love the Nebraska album. So so he comes home from this big tour. He's depressed. He's isolated in his house. He stews in his juices. He makes these demos with just his guitar and a synthesizer and a harmonica and produces the Nebraska album, which uh, my older brother, who I spent the summers with and who was into 
basically into country rock, Willie Nelson, you know, uh, Waylon Jennings, that kind of stuff. And he had a Nebraska album and he was like, this isn't like the other Bruce Springsteen albums and puts it on. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I mean, I loved Atlantic City, loved the whole album, listened to it that whole summer. So I was actually pretty hyped when um, Born in the USA was was set to come out. And I was dating a girl who talked about nothing but Bruce Springsteen. Rushed to the store it came, the day it came out and bought it and did enjoy it at first, uh, you know, uh, and and enjoyed the hits on the radio at the time. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the hatred goes into remission for a little while because of the Nebraska album. Um, but then I had this dental procedure and the, the dentist was very excited to present me with a Walkman and a choice of two cassettes. And I could either listen to Thriller or I could listen to Born in the USA. And I was like, I already have Thriller memorized and I don't want to associate it with dental surgery. So I, I picked Born in the USA thinking I've only heard this a few times because it was pretty new at the time. And then I proceed to have this botched oral surgery. Never have a dentist do oral surgery. Always oh, wow. get an oral surgeon to do oral surgery. Because because if the guy's cutting around in the roof of your mouth with a scalpel and then hits bone yeah. and has this look oh, on God. his face like – what oops and looks you know cranes his neck to look at you <laughs> and what it's done <laughs> oh, no. and has to call somebody else in you know you're yeah. in trouble and and yeah. so anyway i had to I, i've I developed the steaming hatred of porn essay because of this <laughs> but what was your response to porn well <laughs> you know you're the second person in the last six months who's mentioned who i know who's mentioned a springsteen and a visit to the dentist um, but, but I digress. I, I, you and I have a lot, we have a lot of things in common and we've realized that already, but, um, about taste and music, you know, the influences and the, and the, and the, the radar and everything, the transom that pulls everything in. But I'll tell you this, I was, I, my timing has been off with him every time my girlfriend broke up with me two nights before I saw him in, in, um, March of seven of 76 so that had something to now, do that, with it. But was that at a theater or an arena? How big yes, a venue was that he was playing? Yes, that was at the Fox Theater. He did play arenas on the on the um, on the um, the River Tour, so he was playing arenas by then. Some big one. He played MSG then, but he was he 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 played the Fox Theater where I worked, where I would see Leonard Skinner later that year and become the Freeport Yeller. Um, but so I by that time they were um, now let's say we were probably. That was March, so Skinner was in July. Um, but I, I saw the show with a he, with a buddy of mine who I was in a band with. He, he was an usher too. My best friend was an usher and ran into Bruce backstage. We didn't know it was back. This is how totally goofy it all was. They left the backstage door open the first six months we worked at this theater none of us realizing it was a backstage. So, you know, the, all the, all the, I bet all, everybody came through that corridor, but we just would go down and get a Coke because they hadn't started having concessions yet. Cause this theater was on the edge of the chopping block, you know, and, but they saved it. And that was the very beginning of it. And my buddy goes back to get our Cokes. He went with every, he, one person would go in there and get, get the Cokes. And this voice comes up and says, you, you must be thirsty. And he looks over and it's Springsteen. 
talking to him after. And I mean, so I think he's a, I bet that he's a great, I see, he seems like a terrific human being. And I bet I said last week, you know, if they did the me too with the rock hall of fame, there'd be no men in there. Springsteen would probably still be in there. I think he's a good guy, but I am it like, I am so much case. like, Although he did yes, have an affair I, on his first or, or on his true, first wife true. With, with what the woman who became his second wife, but then he stayed but, with her. So, but to, to make a long story short, I you, what you just said about what, I mean, I've I've went to two different tours thinking I was going to dig it, and and it he short circuits whatever it is that I get out of the live concert experience, and I get a lot out of it. I mean, it's a can be a revelation for me and i had some that that spring and skinnard was in a way except i was so embedded with skinnard that it's almost that's a little more heavy duty but i mean i saw some great shows and leon russell johnny winter jay gals band that were like as good as any show i'd ever seen and and i read a review of the show i saw of springsteen at the fox because i found i found it in the atlanta paper and and on the archives and I'm like, God, that sounds like a great show. And that's how I felt when I was reading Michelangelo's book. I'm like reading about Springsteen thinking, God, this guy sounds great in concert. I saw the tour and I didn't like it. And so there's, some, there's something going on. And I I mean, he was good at the Super Bowl. I will say that. The Super Bowl performance I like. But, I, but people love him so much. And that just makes this worse. You know yeah. what you're talking about. It, it, people it are really so does. crazy about him. Yeah, and it's also a regional thing. Like I remember being at a camp out in the late 80s, and we were, you know, drugged out of our mind and all kinds of things, but we were – somebody had acoustic guitars, and we were singing Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson songs. And this – and forgive the slur, but this Yankee comes up and is like, don't y'all know any Springsteen? (laughs) And starts trying to sing – something and we just threw this guy out of the campground (laughs) he was like an escape with his effing life like i've never been so enraged in my life like how dare you shut down i walk the line to try to sing glory days like what oh god you know like where do you right yeah where do you think you are kid you're in texas cut the crap <laughs> like no we're about to sing bob wills is still the king dude i don't want to hear you know the e street shuffle that shit. Yep. like like <laughs> you know and it, and it was so it was one of those songs that has a weird meter you know how a lot of his songs like he, the the verse yeah. goes on and on forever and if you're trying to keep the beat like if you're not max weinberg you're going to be completely baffled yeah. And people were trying to sing along with this crap and just completely devolved into chaos. And that's when Sarita said, enough is enough, you know, and took the guitar away from him. <laughs> it wasn't quite like the John Belushi thing uh, with yes. the folky. But, you know, so if you if you are from the Northeast and, and, you know, many of my good friends from Jersey love Springsteen and yeah, it's a real thing. Obviously, he's a great musician and, and he really connects with people. Other than Nebraska, it pretty much isn't me. And I also, me too. I was also always frustrated because this is a guy who you never saw without his Telecaster in his hands, right? I associated mm-hmm. Telecasters with like either Keith Richards or you know James Burton, either either really hot country picking or you know rock and rhythm guitar and then i would listen to my bruce springsteen records and i heard a lot of saxophone and i heard a lot of keyboards 
and I heard sleigh bells and I heard drums and hand claps and tambourines and backing vocals. And where's the guitar? <laughs> like, I was just Man, like, that is as usual. This is spooky, Nate, because you know, I said, I, I sat, I we found we went and found our seats. He, he was, he didn't have an opening act in '76, he never does because he's gonna play but, for four but, hours. Yes, but we went and found our seats, which were pretty decent. They were actually on our aisle and, and pretty close. Um, it was well sold, but it wasn't sold out. And 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 this was the pretty much my musical compadre that year. We were in a band together, and he he was the guy that I was fifteen, so he was always the guy that came and got me and hauled my drums around and everything. He was a rhythm guitar player, and when we got done, he said I couldn't hear the guitar. And yep. I agree. I agree. I don't. And he, I mean, he plays it on a couple songs, like in um, some later albums that I heard some playing. I was like, God, that's good. But I just, I, I've, I've been burned enough. I'm not going to go for this because I know that's the only guitar on the album. Yeah. And, and he, he's a great guitar poser. And so is, <laughs> is, so yes, is Miami is. Steve. And so is Nils Lofgren. But you know, at least when Clarence Clemens was making a big deal out of the saxophone, you could hear the saxophone. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. like with the guitar parts, uh, you know, I'd be hand put my hand in my ear and just not hearing it. But this is probably not what you know Bruce Springsteen wanted fans yeah. want to hear. So no, let's they don't. try to try to stick to business. So he okay. does the Nebraska album, no tour, which is probably smart. And this was another one that that made me feel like him and his band were inept. And it's not fair because he makes these magical demos. And I do love the Nebraska album. I think it's a great album. I love Atlantic City in particular, I think is a masterpiece. But, you know, he does these demos and he tries to reproduce them with the band and can't replicate the feel and, and makes the right decision. And it's a bold decision to say, hey, let's just give these demos to the to the record label and make them put them out. And it was only because he was, you know, he's already a multi-platinum artist. He'd had... I think three platinum albums by that point and somebody who was so well regarded critically that, you know, Columbia just said, well, you know, we'll put this out and, and, and had a whole promo campaign built around, you know, only Bruce could do this. And, and relative, I mean, for an album, that's a massive bummer. I mean, that, that people like me like it, but nobody else does, uh, you know, it did reasonably well, but it wasn't, it was not a big platinum smash, but then he spends two years working on born in the USA, heavy on the synths, heavy on the drum machines, very much has an eighties, 84 sound. And, you know, honestly, when dancing in the dark came out, I dug it. It was a pretty good hit single. It was boxed out from being number one by When Doves Cry. And the whole album was boxed out from number one by Purple Rain, which is certainly just. But I dug Dancing in the Dark until I saw the video. Oh, boy. Do you remember that video? Of, of course I do. I mean, the, the, I was starting to cover Major League Sports. but yeah, I worked for a small paper, but we covered the Atlanta Braves which meant there were a ton of games to get to go to Atlanta and everybody got to go to Atlanta and cover a game. And so I, and then I went from there to covering college football. So I was starting to be around older guys who were hip. Um, A lot of the sports writers were in their thirties and were hip. And there was one who described in great detail that video and how great it was because of (laughs) course, Bruce, Bruce did it. So of course it's great. 
You know, and there were a couple of just Bruce. Yeah, there were a couple of Bruce files, but keep going. I hear you, man. Well, I mean, the dancing, like Montos blames Courtney Cox, who this is kind of her first yeah. big celebrity appearance later. She's going to star in Friends. Yeah. She plays girl and audience who's, you know, the, the, the divine hand of Bruce reaches down and lifts her up onto the stage to dance <laughs> with him. And, and Montos, the way Montos describes it, like Bruce is cutting the rug and Courtney Cox is this stiff. But the way I saw it, yes, Courtney Cox was completely hapless and stiff, but Bruce was dancing just as bad as I did at yeah. the high school dances in this period. Yeah. He was doing the exact same moves I can remember doing uh, to Wild Boys uh, by Duran Duran a couple years later, or maybe that year, and pretty much getting laughed off the dance floor at the Borger Swimming Center. <laughs> Like, I mean, you know, like, I mean, my namesake, Gary Wilcox, who unrelated, a great dancer, came in, literally cut me out to, you know, like, was like, dude, you're too pathetic to dance with this pretty girl. I'm going to just have to show you. And I was exactly replicating Bruce Springsteen's Oh. Dire. But Bruce just looks like he has a corn cob up his ass and no relationship to the beat whatsoever. I mean, it's a very white guy dance. It's like the yeah, thousand years when white. the Catholic Church forbade dancing is is vividly being represented there. And that's a song I like. You know, I mean it yeah. it it's a it's it's uh, I, later on, I didn't like the the synthesizers and the drum machine, that whole 80s sound. But going back now, it still sounds pretty good. And I think the lyrics are good, good cadence and, um, you know, good, good, yeah. good rhyme scheme meter, you know, kind of as as Mato says, he, he can say hard hearted things in a lighthearted way. I mean, the lyrics are actually pretty heavy. Good yeah. song, but Jesus, that video, man. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it just killed me. And then. And then, you know, you got glory days and, uh, you know, just it, it was it was a classic mid 80s multi hit single multi video album that went on for about a year and a half. And, yep. um, you know, uh, people dug it. Um, it it <laughs> it is what it is, you know, uh, uh, but. There was always a disconnect to me between the way Bruce was marketed as this ultimate rocker. And then the older stuff sounded like Phil Spector records, which I didn't I didn't know Phil Spector when I was a kid, you know, like and and I didn't understand that whole tradition and I didn't know where that was coming from. And I was just like expecting more guitars. But let's go ahead and hear Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days. And that was Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen, a song about baseball. And, 
you know, if you're going to put stuff like that out, you shouldn't be upset when George Will and the Bowtie write an op-ed singing your praises. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he, this is part, this is the thing though. He, I feel like, I feel like he genericized himself for this tour. Something just, this is a just total gut feeling that, that he may, you know, the way and in the opposite way that Willie made it okay to have long hair and like country music. It's like Bruce made it okay to be Republican and like rock and roll. And I know <laughs> yes. that's not what he was trying to do, but when Bruce back in uh, 2004, Bruce played in St. Paul, Minnesota, a, a benefit for um, John Kerry for the president, you know, yeah. and the, 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 we had a, and, and I lived there then in Minnesota, young, had a young Republican governor, Tim Pawlenty. He complained that Bruce shouldn't be doing these kind of things. It's not, you know, but, but it, I think it totally came from this Bruce belongs to everybody. You know, like, have you not followed Springsteen's career? No, I don't have to because all I did was listen to the 85. And so, you know, there's, there's like, that, I feel like that 85 tour, all it accomplished was my wife and my mom knew who Bruce Springsteen was after that, and they wouldn't have otherwise. That's what I feel like about that tour. I well, will say that that they've I've seen some great footage. That band can really cook at times, and the the there's there's one that I saw that got me to see him again in 20, 2000. Burned again. That yes. Freak brother burned again. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. A good reference. 2007, I went again and I, yet again, I listened to a Kiss Greatest Hits on the way. And <laughs> guess what I enjoyed more about that evening? <laughs> the Kiss and I mean, Greatest I, Hits. Yes. And I mean, it's just, I think he's, I mean, and I think I, it was a, I think they're, I, I love his, I love Gary Talent, his bass player. I love Steve Van Zandt. I think he's a fantastic ambassador for rock and roll. I, Max Weinberg wrote a really great book about drumming. I, I admire him. I mean, I, 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 and I, I, like I said, I loved it. Bruce is the kind of guy I'd love to have a cup of coffee with and hang out with. And I bet, you know what I bet though? He's busy with he's Obama kinda, though these days. Yeah, exactly. I bet he would like, I bet he wouldn't be offended by what you and I are saying. That's what the kind of guy. I beat us up. And, uh, you know, and and this, and this was when the buff boss emerged. Like, uh, apparently he'd gotten really into weightlifting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so yeah, and this this was clearly a very calculated album, like that he knew thank you. he knew God, he needed to he knew he had an opportunity, and I think I think yep. it's one of those things when you put out an album like Nebraska that initially puts people off, but that the people who get into it really love it, and you know you've done quality work and, and it and it builds and the river had been a quality piece of work that 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 built yeah. his audience and people were really and he didn't tour off Nebraska, so he'd kind of been away for a while. He knew he had this opportunity. He admitted that, you know, John Landau, his manager and producer, like was like, write me a hit and he wrote Dancing in the Dark, which is an impressive yeah. feat. Like I certainly yeah. couldn't write a hit on command, but but Bruce could he do did. it. You know, and the sound of the album, the strategy of the album was very similar to what ZZ Top did. I, I'd, I'd say it's actually even less <laughs> organic than what ZZ Top oh, or God. the police that did. That is so true. You're because right. Because 
because ZZ Top, you know, integrated their guitars with the synthesizers and the drum machine. Bruce just, as as we said before, the guitars were never that big a sonic presence. He still had the saxophone coming in for the solos, but it was easy yeah. enough to replace the, the organs with synthesizers and the drums with drum machines and get a very 1984 kind of sound. And then, you know, just put together this package of songs of the anthemic Born in the USA, which, you know, on the one hand is a sincere Vietnam protest song, like his original drummer, Bart Haydens, was killed in action. And, and mm-hmm. you know, Bruce was very working class and had lots of stories about, you know, he knew exactly who it was that was getting drafted. And it was him and his friends. And also, especially the black guys in his town were getting yeah. sent way disproportionately. And the college boys were getting a pass. Joe Biden was taking his fifth defer- deferment around that time. Um, <laughs> just, you know, Dan Quell had flat feet or whatever. George George W. Bush was was pretending to be in the National Guard. Uh, you know, John Kerry did serve uh, heroically, but you know, yeah. most of these yeah. most of these guys got out of the war. Bruce Springsteen <laughs> pulled some shit to get out of the war too, but you know, uh, you know, uh, he he was politically correct in that. But it also, Born in the USA, was ambiguous enough that a lot of people read it in a Lee Greenwood way, and yeah. I can I can remember hearing proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, followed up by Born in the USA at the high school talent show by the same terrible bunch of cheese dicks, uh, you know, doing this just straight up jingoism. The same guys who who went down to Cedar Street and held up signs in support of Oliver North the day after he testified to Congress and admitted, you know, selling drugs for the Contras or whatever the fuck he was doing. But, but, uh, you know, this... uh, you know what Springsteen was doing appealed to the worst kind of jingoism in America, and he knew it. He, you know, he knew mm-hmm. that with the whole patriotic mm-hmm. hanky in his pocket on the cover of the album, and he acted all upset when Reagan tried to, you know, steal his shine during the campaign, and he was upset also when Mondale tried to. And now that to me is a classic, yeah. like BS political move it's like kind of pick a side dude like you can't you can't like but because he was trying to be so popular and everything to everybody and succeeding yeah he didn't want yes, either he, did. yeah. he didn't want either campaign you know using his songs mm-hmm. but nonetheless you know national review and george will were singing his praises for a reason because he was hitting that button he was very much in line with the whole top gun rambo lee greenwood yep. the thing and yet having his cake and eating it too by also saying he's this heartland protester, you know, working man thing. And, and I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, out of all the bigs of this year, I mean, I would say Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna, and Bruce Springsteen are probably the big four biggest stars of this year. I have to say Bruce is a distant fourth for me as far as critical appraisal uh retrospectively and that's even including michael's personal the debits for michael's personal disgusting failings as a human being you know we we both think bruce is reasonably good person as reasonably good as you can be at this level of fame and fortune nonetheless man i mean i'll give me madonna prince or michael jackson any day (laughs) like like i don't think this stuff is held up and they move the needle they move the cultural needle, especially Madonna and Prince, especially Madonna. 
But yep. get this. And Michael. Pretty, Michael became the first yes, number one superstar to be African-American. I mean, before that, you could be the biggest African-American, but not. That's true. There was always the Beatles or Elvis or Elton yeah. John that was, was out true. there being the real superstar. But with Michael, there was no white guy that was over Michael. Michael was it. And this year, you know, and Bruce was a distant second to Prince, like, you know, through this yeah. whole thing. But go ahead and make your point. You're gonna make. Well, the, the, the height, the, the, this is what this is the other the a, the other part of this is the, 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 the you know, there was the hype in 75 on the two covers and all that stuff. And Rolling Stone, even though they didn't they didn't put them on the cover, neither did neither did cream that fall of 75. That's what's kind of ironic. But they they, you know. They they sung his praises and and so the the hype had been done by '76 when I saw him. This again, this was like the hype on the steroids that he wasn't taking, but it was you know it was buff. It was and and it kept going and that thing kept going till the end of 1985. And there were there were I read so many articles. I mean dozens of articles of people who were just either just discovering or. People who already been loving him, like you know the whole, the whole hype thing about how this is the greatest thing ever, and it just it was, I want to say it was blinding because it was just there was just so much, and it was even worse than it was. At least in '75, it died down, and I, at least in '75, it was it was us, and it was rock and roll still. And the parents, you know, my mom didn't pick up on who Bruce Springsteen was. She did in '84 and '85. Yeah, he was inescapable. And Truly. Yeah, and I was a dork who worshipped rock critics and believed everything they said. And my even dorkier friends who, who were even worse, I can remember a good friend of mine buying that box set that came out a few years later, the live Bruce Springsteen box set. And just, you know, one of those things where you're raving about it so much the day you buy it that it's obvious you – it's obviously fake. You haven't listened to it long enough to, to be that excited <laughs> about it, you know. And 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 you know, this is the same guy who was going to go all in for the Joshua Tree. Um, and <laughs> you know, it, it's it's just not to be cruel to 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 to, uh, to to former friends, but you know, or if you're listening, John, to dear friends, but <laughs> yeah, well remembered, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This this stuff left a bad taste in my mouth, and and um, although again, like going back and listening to it, it's about half good songs still. Dancing in the Dark, I still dig. Glory Days, though, that that hoot he makes at the beginning of it, in a post Kevin Costner. If you build field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. World, I cannot handle glory days at all. I mean, all I could think of yeah. was was Kevin Costner and stupid crap about the ghost of Sheila's <laughs> Joe Jackson. <laughs> you know, I, I very good, I, very I good like, reference. I feel like Glory Days was responsible for that movie. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but. Anyway, so there's the cultural crimes of Bruce Springsteen. I hope our go. listeners uh, can forgive us. We got one more cue to get True. in. Uh, uh, Here's Bruce Springsteen, Dancing in the Dark.
And that was Bruce Springsteen, Dance in the Dark. Try to enjoy that song without visualizing the video. This is one instance where the video really can ruin your mental image of a song. That was the knock on videos at the time, which I generally think is ridiculous. But in this case, I, I agree completely. And so to wrap up the chapter, uh, he talks about Fila Kuti, which again, Still seems like a non sequitur to me. I, I kind of like to hear Michelangelo uh, explain the connection, but I guess he's going back and tying in the Africa stuff. Um, but, you know, Fila Kuti, this kind of ties in with the previous chapter about Bob Marley and the, and the sort of the search for the new Bob Marley. And Fila Kuti of Nigeria was one of the artists that Capitol Records got behind and tried to push in that way. And he was basically at war with the Nigerian government throughout the 80s and was arrested before he could leave to the country to do his American tours. So Bill Laswell, the kind of uh, New York jazz fusion art rock uh, guy, uh, got to remix one of those albums, which wasn't one of Fila Kuti's best albums, but Laswell did say, this is the perfect way to remix an album while the, while the artist is in jail in the third world. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Any final thoughts about Fila Kuti before we wrap? Um, nope, that you covered it. Perfectly. Cool. <laughs> All right. So hopefully people can forgive us for knocking the boss. And again, you know, mad respect for Nebraska and, and the whole body yeah. of work. Although I think surely even hardcore Bruce Springsteen fans can agree his best work was behind him by the time he did Born in the USA. And the rest of the stuff that he's going to do, he's never going to kind of reach the heights of Nebraska or the river or darkness on the edge of town again. And, you know, it is what it is. And next week, we're going to be talking about Foreigner and other AOR uh, classics of 1980. Hell yeah. So for Ed Legg, I'm okay. Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Michael Angelo Matos' incomparable Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Martin Popoff to discuss his beautiful new book, Bowie at 75. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 